You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Your diabetic presents with abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting. Could this patient have gastroparesis from the diabetes? How do we approach this and what treatments are available? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and with me today is Dr. William Shea, Professor of Medicine, Director of GI Physiology in the Division of Gastroenterology at the University of Michigan Health System, and member of the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Shea. Thanks so much, Lee. It's my pleasure to be here with you. How often do we see diabetics with this problem of gastroparesis? It's a fairly common problem. It turns out that somewhere between 25% up to half of type 1 diabetics and around a third of type 2 diabetics will have evidence of delayed gastric emptying by careful testing. Does this relate at all to the severity or duration of their diabetes, or it's independent of that? There are some general associations between the duration of illness and the severity of the diabetes, but it's not a hard and fast rule. In other words, most commonly, the people that are affected by diabetic gastroparesis are those individuals that have had poorly controlled, long-standing disease. But I think all of us that have been doing this for a while have occasional patients that have been under better control and have shorter duration of disease, but nonetheless still develop gastroparesis. So we certainly can't rule it out if somebody is a relatively newly diagnosed diabetic and they present with the appropriate symptoms. No, absolutely not. And in fact, I think that's a critical point, Lee, is that the distinction between symptoms versus gastroparesis, a lot of times I think that we're quick to assume that symptoms in diabetics equal gastroparesis, but it's important to draw that distinction between gastroparesis, which is a physiological diagnosis based upon an abnormal result from a gastric emptying study, versus symptoms, which can be from gastroparesis, but similarly could be from any of a variety of other causes as well. So how might a diabetic with this problem present to us? Well, the most typical symptoms that are associated with with gastroparesis are things like postprandial fullness, early satiety, nausea, vomiting. Some patients with gastroparesis will also get upper abdominal discomfort or even pain. But you can see that those symptoms are fairly nonspecific. And so in some cases, they'll represent gastroparesis. But in other cases, when you do careful, detailed evaluation with gastric emptying studies, for example, you won't necessarily find delayed gastric emptying. In fact, it's even been pointed out that in some diabetic patients with those types of symptoms, they'll have accelerated gastric emptying. And so we do need to think about peptic processes and other functional bowel issues. And are are there other important things to think of in the differential? Yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail right in the head, and it's the, the differential for these types of upper GI symptoms is going to be the same as it would be in somebody that doesn't have diabetes. The difference is that the rank order of the differential will be a bit different in a diabetic. So you are going to be more concerned about abnormalities in gastric physiology, such as gastric emptying, or another thing I'll throw into the argument is gastric accommodation, and that abnormality or the reflex relaxation of the upper part of the stomach in response to eating a meal, which can be abnormal. Uh, in patients with diabetes, and for that matter, can also be abnormal in patients with so-called dyspepsia or upper GI symptoms of unclear etiology. So the the upper part of the stomach needs to relax in in order to have the bolus go through and food go through it, and that can be impaired. Absolutely. In fact, stomach emptying is really a a much more complicated process than we than we likely give it credit for. You know, just going through the the things that need to happen for you to normally 
empty food from your stomach, remember that in response to eating a meal, the upper portion of the stomach or the fundus should relax to allow you to continue to eat without generating tremendous amounts of pressure in response to eating food. In addition, the distal stomach or the antrum needs to grind up or triturate the food into very small particles, which then can pass through the pylorus. And for that matter, the pylorus needs to appropriately relax in response to that process of trituration or grinding to allow food to then move into the proximal small intestine where where really digestion and processing absorption uh, occurs. And remember that the last portion of this whole equation, which again oftentimes gets overlooked, are all the reflexes that are present between the proximal small intestine and the stomach. Remember, that's one of the main reasons why, for example, fatty foods tend to slow or tend to empty more slowly than other constituents of the diet like proteins. So it's a very complicated uh, interaction of, of many parts of the GI tract and, and neurologic input. Are there particular aspects of this that tend to be more affected in diabetics? Yeah, I think that's, a, that's an excellent question. And the prevailing theory right now is that most diabetics will develop gastroparesis as a consequence of autonomic neuropathy. And it's probably the reason that we tend to see this disorder more so in patients with other complications which have been ascribed to autonomic neuropathy, things like retinopathy, things like peripheral neuropathy, like nephropathy. So the common thread seems to be autonomic neuropathy. And then are, are there other characteristic abnormalities of this process that mark other types of either functional bowel diseases or other diseases? Well, one thing I do, I want to actually touch on at this point, which I think is kind of interesting, and the diabetologists are very, very familiar with this, but it's interesting that it's only now becoming more clear that this issue is important to gastroenterologists, and that is this vicious cycle that many of these patients with diabetic gastroparesis get into because realize that delayed gastric emptying leads to unpredictable delivery of nutrients to the small, small bowel. And so in that way, it can lead to significant problems with diabetic control. Now, why is that important from the standpoint of gastroparesis? Well, it's important because it turns out that hyperglycemia further delays gastric emptying. So you can see how these, these poor patients get into this terrible situation where their glycemic control is a mess because their stomach emptying isn't right. And that, that poor glycemic control then feeds into further aggravating the fundamental problem with gastric emptying. So it's a tough issue that these, that these patients deal with. In my thinking about the diabetics who become brittle, have never really thought about that mechanism playing a role, but very obviously it can. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the sort of proof of the pudding on this particular point is that if you improve gastric emptying, it's been shown that you can improve glycemic control. In fact, diabetologists, again, not uncommonly these days, start to look at gastric emptying in patients that have very poor glycemic control. And in fact, improving gastric emptying, improving the reliability of delivery of nutrients to the small bowel, improves diabetic control in response to insulin dosing. And in turn, improving glycemic control then makes it easier to treat the gastroparesis. So again, it's a vicious cycle, but if you can break the cycle, it actually oftentimes has multiple benefits to the patient. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm speaking with Dr. William Shea from the University of Michigan about diabetic gastroparesis. 
when our patient presents to us, it sounds like we should make sure that we're not dealing with a peptic process, a gallbladder process, appropriate history, exam, lab tests. If we suspect gastroparesis, is gastric emptying study the way to go? It's surely the gold standard right now for the diagnosis of gastroparesis, but a lot of times you can get clues in just your standard workup of a lot of these upper GI symptoms. So, for example, it's obviously not uncommon at all for an individual with these types of symptoms to undergo upper endoscopy. And, and that in and of itself can be helpful on occasion, not all the time, but on occasion to help identify individuals with gastroparesis. Because remember that we ask patients to fast for probably up to 12 hours before they undergo an upper endoscopy examination. If you find evidence of retained food in the stomach at the time you perform an endoscopy after a 12-hour fast, that's relatively specific for the diagnosis of gastroparesis. Unfortunately, it's not very sensitive. In other words, there's a lot of patients that have gastroparesis that won't have evidence of retained food when you do an upper endoscopy. But on the occasions where you do identify that, that finding at the time of upper endoscopy, you can be pretty assured they have gastroparesis and probably don't even need to do a gastric emptying study at that point in, in such a patient. For patients where they have a negative endoscopy, you don't find a peptic process or some other structural abnormality to explain an individual's symptoms, you can certainly go on to performing gastric scintigraphy, that is that nuclear medicine study that typically involves the ingestion of technetium-labeled eggs or oatmeal and then sequential scans over the per a period of two to four hours to assess stomach emptying. And I do want to say one thing about gastric scintigraphy that I think is very important for listeners, because in the community, most gastric emptying studies are conducted over a period of 60 to 120 minutes. But there's very clear evidence now to show that the sensitivity and specificity of the study are significantly improved if you sample over or scan over a four-hour period of time. In fact, the gold standard that's held up by the American Motility Society as well as a variety of other organizations, um, the American Gastroenterological Association, for example, suggests that we scan for a period of four hours. Certainly, a scanning period of less than two hours is really not that useful and should be discouraged in clinical practice. Well, that's a very practical and important point. So when we do order the gastric emptying study, we should make sure that scanning is continued for up to four hours. Agreed. Okay. And then if we make this diagnosis, how are we going to help these patients? What is our, our go-to treatment or medication? Well, you know, before we talk about medication, let's just say a couple things about diet because I think it's an important point. It's For me as a gastroenterologist, I oftentimes try to jump right to medications but almost invariably, patients will stop me and say, but wait a minute, before you put me on medications, what about diet and lifestyle recommendations? So let's just talk through that very briefly. I think it's absolutely critical to recommend to the to patients that suffer with gastroparesis to attempt a trial with smaller, more frequent meals. So rather than two or three large meals like we tend to do in the United States, uh, a lot of times patients will significantly improve simply by having them eat smaller portions four to five times per day. Another thing is I think it's critically important to make sure that patients understand that fatty or greasy foods will delay gastric emptying and potentially worsen symptoms in patients that have gastroparesis or for that matter, by the way, patients that have acid reflux or dyspeptic symptoms in general will oftentimes benefit by limiting the ingestion of fatty or greasy foods. I think another general thing, particularly for patients with gastroparesis, is avoiding carbonated beverages. These patients already have 
food in their stomachs that causes gastric distension. And, of course, if you ingest carbonated beverages, which further distend your stomach, you can see how that might worsen symptoms in some of these patients. So I think the dietary and lifestyle stuff is definitely worth talking about. And, and one other thing I do want to mention is for people that have more severe or frequent symptoms, something that you can go to that's a little bit more drastic but can be a benefit, at least in my experience, is really to go to a mechanical soft diet or even a liquid diet. A lot of times patients don't like this, but nonetheless, they will feel better with this strategy, at least at the times when they're more symptomatic. Well, I want to thank Dr. William Shea, who has been our guest as we've been discussing diabetic gastroparesis, the situations in which to suspect it, how to work it up, and then the treatment, both lifestyle and medication or pharmacologic. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.